morning, everyone. Glad you're here today, and uh, thank you to those of you who are uh, veterans of uh, our former conflicts or present. We just want to express our gratitude to you today and also to family members who have sons or daughters uh, serving overseas. Um, tonight, as a part of our Fresh Encounter service, little plug, um, we're going to be praying uh, specifically for um, the Valcors as uh, they send Joel off, and uh, also for any of those of you who have um, family members um, in harm's way, we'd love to have you join us. We're also going to have a time of prayer for our high school seniors that are graduating. And along with all of that, we're going to focus on the Trinity, of Father, Son, and Spirit. So that's tonight at uh, 6 o'clock, and uh, we'd love to have you join us. So take your Bibles and let's go to uh, Matthew 3, and uh, join me please as we pray. Father, your word is a gift to us, and the Spirit uses it to open our eyes to either new truths or truths that we have known for a while that um, we need to reconnect with. And this passage today is a really important one. And so we pray that you'd help us to understand its meaning, to know why you uh, put it uh, here in the Bible for our help and our instruction, and then to figure out what, in light of what this verse says, we need to do with it. And so we're praying for illumination, ability to see what the passage is saying, application, how to apply it to our lives, And then, Lord, to be able to reflect on it for days, weeks, and hopefully the rest of our lives. That this could be a day when we meet with you and our lives are changed. So, Father, we pray this would not just be another Sunday, another sermon, another text, but instead would be a great moment of your people meeting with you. So, Holy Spirit, be our teacher now. Jesus, be exalted. Father, be glorified. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The, uh, The word behold is a great word. A little old school, though. I don't usually use the word behold. In fact, you might think it a little strange, for instance, if you said, hey, where's your wife? And I saw her walking down the hallway, and I went, behold, my wife. You think that might be a little strange, a little over the top. Or imagine if I came into a staff meeting, and uh, I said, guys, I've got an idea today. And they're like, what is it? And I say, behold, it's, it's going to be like, okay, Mark's heard from God or something. Okay, So the word, the word behold is a word that announces. Um, it invites inquiry. It, it begs you to look, to see. It identifies important events. When John, in his gospel, chapter 1 and verse 29, records the words of John the Baptist, as Jesus was coming to him, to the waters of baptism, he says this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, look, it's the Lamb of God. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17, Matthew says, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So, Behold is used for big events, for significant moments, and really important announcements. The baptism of Jesus is a behold event. It's a really important event. In fact, you may not know this, but all four gospel writers record the baptism of Jesus. And that's pretty unusual. For instance, the genealogy of Jesus, not recorded in all four gospels. The birth of Christ, not recorded in all four Gospels. The Sermon on the Mount, not recorded in all four Gospels. But the baptism of Jesus is. Do you know what that puts it on the level with? 
It puts it on the level of things like Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection. It means that the baptismal event of Jesus is a behold kind of event, a really important moment in the life of Christ. So here's my question. My question is, do you know why the baptism of Jesus is so important? Do you know what the purpose was of his baptism? For instance, was he repenting like the Jews? Uh, Was he preparing himself like they were for the coming of the kingdom? Was his, his baptism somehow related to what you just saw up here with believer's baptism? Is it different and how so? If it is different, in what ways is it different? See, these are questions that surface when we start looking at the baptism of Jesus. If it's a behold kind of event, and it's talked about in all four Gospels, it has to be very significant. And this morning what we're going to do is behold some things from the baptism of Jesus. To ask ourselves, what do you see when you read Matthew chapter 3? What do you see? What do you behold? And, And why is this event so important that all four Gospel writers talk about it? And there's three things this morning that I hope to help you understand about the baptism of Jesus. So let's get to work. The first one is this. Verse 13 and 14 helps us to understand that Jesus doesn't fit with John's baptism. Look at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. All right, quick review. The baptism that John was offering, two weeks ago we looked at this. Remember, John was um, a prototype, so to speak, of uh, Elijah, or really a type of Elijah, not a prototype. He patterned his life after him. He had the same clothing, the same um, strong message, the same kind of dwelling. So he was Elijah-like in his demeanor. John's ministry was to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. So his primary message, kind of the bullet point of what he said was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And remember that he was using water baptism, um, this symbol of humility, contrition, and cleansing. So these Jews would go into the waters of baptism, they would confess their sins as a statement of, we want to be ready for the coming of the Messiah. And, and all of this was to prepare the people for one who was greater than John, who was coming. And remember, John's baptism was enormously popular. People from Jerusalem and all of Judea were coming out to be baptized by him. Even the scribes and Pharisees. Remember, those are the fellows to whom John said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So, we learn from Matthew 3 that Jesus is coming now from Galilee to the Jordan, verse 13, for the purpose of being baptized by John. This is important because the distance between Galilee and the Jordan was around 70 miles, a long distance to travel. And in fact, the nuance of the Greek language implies that Jesus was purposeful in his movement from Galilee to Jordan. In other words, he wasn't just traveling along the side of the road and said, hey, let's go over and see what's going on in John's world over the Jordan. Now, there's a specific design, a particular intent that Jesus has in traveling from Galilee to the Jordan. There's a particular reason why he does this. This is an important moment, important enough for him to travel a long ways. But what is the importance of this moment? Well, verse 14 helps us to understand a little bit as we unpack this significant event in Jesus' life. Verse 14 is important because no other gospel writer records the conversation between Jesus and John. Only Matthew records it. And John says this to Jesus. He says to him, 
Why are you coming to be baptized by me? Look, he says, verse 14, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? You see, John had told the people that there was one who was coming who was greater than him and that he was not even worthy to untie his sandals or to carry them. And so when Jesus comes to the uh, baptismal waters of the Jordan River, the text tells us that John tried to prevent him, tried to stop him, tried to beg him not to be involved in this. Verse 14 says John would have prevented him. The word means to forbid, to stop, to refuse. It's, it's a word where you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, time out, time out. No way. No, we have to stop. It, it's sort of like what happened to me on um, Friday evening. If you, the lights maybe aren't bright enough, but I've got a, a mark on the bridge of my nose. It, it's not a, like, pimple or something. What that is, is a little mark from an airsoft gun right there. And so what's happened on Friday evening is my boys and I were playing airsoft, and I'm hunkered down. And I, I'm, I'm shooting as, and trying to hit them as fast as I can. And I'm, I'm between lawn chairs that have spaces between them. And I'm peering through. And all of a sudden, bang! And my, I hit right in the nose. My eyes are watering. I'm laying on the ground. And I said, time out! Time out! That's hurt! Because they're like, freeze! You know, like, time out! I'm done! I went inside. I'm like, too old. Okay, inside. So to stop, to prevent, to, to say, no, wait, wait, wait. This is what John is doing to Jesus. Don't even think about having me baptize you. Why? Because John isn't worthy to baptize Jesus. He says, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. What he's saying is that you don't fit the baptism. Well, how does he not fit it? A couple reasons. The most obvious fact is the fact that Jesus doesn't need to repent. So he's going to go into the water and everybody else is confessing their sins. And but Jesus won't have to go into the water to confess his sins. So Jesus doesn't fit John's baptism. It was about John's baptism was about being ready for the Messiah and confessing her sins to be cleansed, waiting for the coming of the kingdom. The second thing is that Jesus was greater than John. And so therefore, Jesus ought to be the one who was baptizing John. And the third thing is, is that John's baptism was to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. Well, guess who's in the water? (laughs) The Messiah, right? So it's just like, well, we don't have a category for this. We're doing all this, preparing for you, and now you're coming into the waters that's supposed to picture you, and yet you're doing it to you, but we're waiting for you. So it's just all, it doesn't fit. I'll give you an example of what this would kind of be like. Two examples. The first would be, imagine that if we were to announce today that we were having the, a special guest, and our special guest was the President of the United States. And imagine a, a big military band over here, and one of the unique things about being the President is whenever you walk into a fairly large room with a gathering of people, they announce you're coming with music. I mean, that's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? That, and, and they play a song. You know what the song is? Hail to the Chief, Right? So imagine that as we're waiting for the president to come in, the band is playing Hail to the Chief. And the, the trumpets are going after, the trombones are, are, are just doing everything that they can do to make a grand entrance. And the president doesn't come out of that door. No, he slips around the backside and goes into the middle of the band. And he picks up the trumpet uh, from the hands of one of the officers. And he begins playing Hail to the Chief along with everyone else. Of course, all of the people in the band are looking at him like, what is he doing here? And he's playing Hail to the Chief, Hail to the Chief. And, and about this time, everyone in the band begins to think, you know what, we're 
playing for you so you can come in the door, but you're in the band playing for yourself. This doesn't work. Get around, back, please, and come in the door because you're the president. We're the band. We're waiting for you, and now you're playing to announce your own coming. doesn't make sense. That's what's happening in John. Okay, so here's another example. Maybe this will be a little clearer. So imagine, imagine that we're coming over to your house uh, for, for dinner. And you, like our family, want your house to look clean, even though it normally isn't, right? So therefore, what you do, therefore, what you do is you clean up your house all day to present your bathrooms the way that they're not normally, right? So it's just a big facade that we all, so what we need to do is just show up unannounced at each other's houses. Oh, this is how you really live. Okay, I see. Okay, that's right. Good. Make us all feel better. So anyways, so imagine I'm coming over to your house at six o'clock at night and my family shows up. Um, at 8 o'clock in the morning with our cleaning supplies. We've got our Fantastic and our Windex and our paper towels and, of course, our, our you know, plastic gloves because we want any of your germs. And so we, we're showing up at your house, and we knock on your door, and we say, hey, we're here. And you're like, what are you doing here? Well, we're here to clean your house so we can come over, right? We're here to prepare the house because we know that you live like us, and your house certainly isn't ready yet. So let's come on over, and uh, we're going to clean your house. You would look at us and say, you, you, you keep, first of all, I'm offended. Secondly, you're going to come and prepare the house for you to come over? That doesn't make sense. You're our guest. You don't clean our house so that you can come over. Well, that's what's happening with John. The baptism was about the Messiah, and he's in the water. And that's why John says, wait a minute, this, this doesn't work. This, this doesn't make sense. You're greater than me. You don't even need to be here. And for that matter, you're the one we're preparing for. So the first thing we see about Jesus' baptism is it doesn't fit with John's baptism. All right, But that doesn't answer the question, so what is this baptism for? Because four gospel writers mentioned it. It's clearly important. So what, what is this all about? What does this baptism really mean? And essentially, there's two words that I think summarize what Jesus' baptism is all about. They are the words inauguration and the word identification. Inauguration and identification. In other words, it means that Jesus' ministry will be launched from this baptism and he will, in his baptism, identify with the people to whom his ministry will be launched. Now, the inauguration comes in verses 16 and 17, and the identification comes in verse 15. So we're, we'll look at these not in the order of the text, but we're going to look at them um, so you understand the baseline of Jesus' ministry and then conclude with why this is really meaningful in terms of identification. So what does inauguration of his ministry mean? Look at verse 16. It says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water... And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. All right. First thing to note is that the heavens were opened to him. Okay? This is a big deal. If people were standing around and they could see the heavens were opened, they they wouldn't have been like, Oh, look, the heavens have opened. I mean, when the heavens open like this, this means something really big is going to happen. Like a portal between earth and heaven has been opened up and God's going to speak. And if you were to look at the various moments in, in, in biblical history, like in Ezekiel chapter 1, when the heavens opened or God began to speak and the Spirit comes, th- these are moments when big things, big news, um, big things in God's plans are announced. It means that what's happening on earth is by divine design. 
It's that God is accomplishing the prayer of Jesus later on uh, that we'll see. When, when Jesus says, um, let your will be done as er- on earth as it is in heaven. That this connection between earth and heaven, when the heavens open, now it's going to happen. And God is going to say something and really announce important news. But before he speaks, so heavens open, verse 16 tells us that the Spirit of God descends like a dove and it came and rested upon Christ. Now, I told you that all four gospel writers record th- this moment of Jesus' life. They don't all record it the same way. They give varying details about what happened. They're, they're all consistent in terms of the storyline, but they don't highlight the same thing. But the one thing that every single writer highlights is the presence of the Spirit. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They don't all record the conversation between Jesus and John. They don't all record um, that moment when when Jesus comes down to to Jordan. But every single one of them records the coming of the Spirit upon Christ. This, This Spirit anointing, this filling, this empowering, this Spirit coming upon Jesus is a really important part of His story. Why? Well, let me show you. The book of Isaiah talked about the fact that when the Messiah would come, the single most defining characteristic of him would be that he would be empowered, anointed by the Spirit, that the Spirit of God would come upon him. Look at Isaiah 11.1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Remember the genealogy? Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Jesse is David's father. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So the idea is that this this Old Testament idea of the Messiah, when he comes, the single defining characteristic of his life will be that the Spirit of God is on him. Look at this other passage, Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, upon whom I whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So again, this idea that that the Messiah is the anointed one. That's what the word Christ means. It means chosen, anointed one. And then finally, look at this one. Isaiah 64. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now, sidebar. When Jesus goes into the synagogue as a child and he opens up the scroll and he reads from the book of Isaiah, guess what passage he reads? This one. So it's no wonder that the scribes and Pharisees not only marvel at his learning, but they have to marvel. Why did he choose this text? This captures the the ministry of Jesus in the Old Testament. Look at what it says. He has sent me to proclaim, to, to rather, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's us. To the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities. The devastations of many generations. This is the ministry of the Messiah. He will do all of this. He'll put oil of gladness where there was mourning. He'll change ashes of of, of mourning and pain into the, the, the beautiful reality of freedom and grace. This was the role that the Messiah was to take. 
So the presence of the Spirit then is this idea that He's the Spirit-anointed Messiah. Such that this Spirit empowerment thing becomes the defining characteristic of the chosen servant of God. This doesn't mean that Jesus was without the Spirit prior to this moment. Rather, what it means is that in this baptismal event, Jesus is christened, He's anointed, He's put upon Him this presence of the Spirit to demonstrate visibly that Jesus is commissioned in His messianic mission. In other words, the presence of the Spirit identifies that Jesus indeed is the One. He is the Messiah. And that's why four Gospel writers record this. It is to say, by God's divine decree, this is the Anointed One, the Christ, the Messiah. But there's even more here. Verse 17 tells us that God speaks. It says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That little phrase, the fact that the Father says it, is loaded with all sorts of meaning. Let me give you a few. First is there's Trinity here. Jesus has the Spirit of God upon him. He's there obeying the will of the Father, and the Father speaks blessing over him. This is one of the most um, obvious, clear indications of the Trinity that we have in the entire New Testament. Secondly, Jesus' obedience is clear. That then results in the Father's affirmation. And then we have the Spirit's empowerment. So we have the three different roles of the triune Godhead. Where the Father decrees, the Son obeys, and the Spirit empowers. Further, by saying, this is my Son, there's a parallel to a Messianic Psalm in the Old Testament. Psalm 2 and verse 7 that says, The Lord said to me, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. So there's this parallel to that text when God says, this is my son. Further, there's another parallel to Abraham and Isaac. Remember Abraham, the father of the Jewish people? God told him, offer his son Isaac. And what God said in Genesis 22, 2, over and over, he said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go and offer him as a burnt offering. So when the father says, this is my beloved son, this is my son. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There are, there's echoes of the Abrahamic sacrifice of Isaac. And any Jew who understood all that was entailed in that story had to hear the tone of this is my son, my only son, whom I love. The heavens open. The Spirit of God descends. The Father endorses And Christ's ministry is launched. So, how is his ministry inaugurated? It's inaugurated because this baptism is not about repentance. This is not about the kind of baptism that John had. This is not about Jesus coming and confessing his sins or somehow preparing um, himself for the coming of the Messiah. He was the Messiah. Instead, this moment is a, a, a defining statement by the Father over his Son that he is the one. He's the chosen one. He's the Messiah. He's the empowered one. And this Trinitarian convergence of Father, Son, and Spirit will define the ministry of Christ for the next 30 years or next three years until the tragic events from a human perspective but the divinely inspired events of the cross will then fulfill his messianic mission. The long-awaited Messiah affirmed by the Father empowered by the Spirit has come. He has been inaugurated. 
So that's the first thing that his baptism is about. Inauguration. It's a really big deal. That God sends him on his mission. There's another piece. And it's the word identification. Now I've chosen to take this passage out of order in the text because it's this one that for me, and I hope for you, is even more meaningful than the inauguration piece. Essentially, verse 15, look at it. Here's what it says. It's about identification. Jesus answered him. This is back to John. Remember, John has said, I, I need to be baptized by you. You come to me. And Jesus said to him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So John tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized. And Jesus' answer is, let it be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does this mean? He's telling John that there's something important about this moment. There's something about Jesus' baptism that went beyond John's understanding. He's telling him that there's something about fulfillment that's in place here. He's telling him that there's, there's something going on, John, that is way beyond the normal reason why you baptize people. And what is that? It is the issue of identification. When Jesus says that we must do this in order fulfilling, to fulfill all righteousness, it means that Jesus is embracing an act of obedience. He, he's doing the very thing that human beings do, even though, listen, He didn't need to do it. So He's enter, entering the waters of human baptism, Waters of repentance, waters of renewal, even though he doesn't need to repent, he doesn't need to be renewed. Jesus is entering into the waters of baptism in order to accomplish ultimate righteousness. How so? Here's how. Because when Jesus identifies with his people, he then paves the way for them to identify with him. The equation goes like this. He is made like us so that we can be made like Him. He goes into the waters of baptism as a way of identifying with God's people. He enters a water that He doesn't deserve. He enters the waters that don't even necessarily apply to Him. And He does so so He can identify with sinful human beings because that is the essence of His mission. His mission is to identify with God's people so that righteousness can be made possible for those people who should be in the water that He is in. Or, to state it like I put it in the point, it is to identify with us so that we might identify with Him. This concept is so central to the message of the Bible it is central to the meaning of what it means to be saved. It's the difference between heaven and hell. What we're talking about here is at the heart of the heart of the gospel. Let me show you this from a couple other spots in the Bible. Isaiah 53, talking about the suffering servant, says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's identification. He took my sorrows. He took my griefs. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The identification of Christ with people makes the cross work. You can't have a spirit on the cross. You can't have an animal on the cross. You can't have a theory on the cross. It has to be a man, a human being with flesh and blood. He has to hang there and suffer. He has to identify. He has to be one like us or the cross doesn't work for us. And he enters the waters of baptism in order to say, I am entering your world so that you can enter mine. And that is the sum total of why he came. John 1 puts it this way. And the word became flesh. Okay, stop. Talk about a category breaker right there. The heaven looks at that and the what became what? The word became flesh. The, 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 the son Perfect in unity with the Father and the Spirit. With no lack, no void, no needs. God didn't need you. That's why He didn't make you because He was needy. Like, oh, got nothing to do. Maybe I'll make sinful, wicked people. No. What's God's going to do? The Spirit, Son, and, and, and the Father are perfectly happy in their harmony. And the Son becomes flesh. The infinite becomes finite. That's a category breaker. And why? We have seen His glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from His fullness, His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The pathway of the delivery of grace upon grace to you is Jesus' identification with us. He identifies with mankind, human beings, so that human beings might, doesn't mean all do, but they might identify with Him. And the only way you identify with Christ is if you embrace His death as your own. There's no clearer verse than this one. 2 Corinthians 5.21 I mean, look at this. For our sake, He, that's God the Father, made Him Christ to be Sin. Listen to me. If this wasn't written by God and wasn't inspired text, that would be blasphemous. He made him to be sin. When Jesus says, like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, he's comparing himself to a snake. I'll be lifted up like a snake. And if you look at me, you'll live. If you receive me, you'll live. He he made him to be sin. And if that wasn't bad enough, who knew no sin? I mean, the, 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 the tragedy and yet the beauty of the cross in Christ's identification with his people is that God makes him his son, his only son, with whom he's well pleased, who never knew sin, hadn't have a single bad, wicked, sinful thought ever. He makes him sin, even though he has no sin, in order that what? Look at what it says. In order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Meaning that God pours out everything that Christ doesn't deserve in order that you might receive everything that you don't deserve. And it is that Christ's identification with us creates the possibility of us being identified with Him so that we who know sin, who are sinful, might be cleansed and might become the righteousness of God. And so here is this beautiful divine exchange that happens through the Gospel. It is that Christ identifies with us becoming sin so that we can identify with Him and thereby we become righteous. It means that the baptismal event pictures the fact that when Jesus died, we died. That God took Him and poured out our sin on Him. And that when He died, we died. When He rose, we arose. And that as the person comes out of the water, it pictures this beautiful freedom, this liberation that happens as a believer understands that now my life is contained in the person and work of Christ. That everything about me is defined by two words, Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is the most wonderful, glorious thing in the world that we could ever celebrate. (laughs) I went to Starbucks this morning and got my tall, half-regular, half-decaf cup of coffee. And as I went to the window, the guy took my money. He said, going to do anything fun today? (laughs) And I said, yeah, I'm going to church. He was thinking about the race. (laughs) This, this is the essence of what life is all about. That Christ identifies with us so that we could identify with Him. This is a stunning, glorious, powerful truth that transforms our lives. So receiving Christ means that you identify His death as your death. It means that Christ was baptized to identify with you so that you could be identified with Him. And when Paul wants to explain this in Romans 6, he says, don't you know that those of us who were baptized into His death so be raised in newness of life? So that means that John's baptism is different. It was meant to prepare people for the coming Messiah. Jesus' baptism was meant to identify himself with mankind. So what is believer baptism about? What did you just see here? Listen, you didn't see John's baptism here. And you didn't see Jesus' baptism here. What you saw is a believer's baptism, which is a believer saying, I identify with Him. He's my Lord, my Savior. He transformed my soul. He changed me. He took me from where I was, and now I'm like this. I received Him as my Savior, and watch as I show you what happened in my heart and life. So here's my question. If you've received Christ, why? Would you not identify with him in those waters? Why? Or let me be stronger. How dare you claim to believe that you can identify with Christ and then not identify with him? It doesn't work that way. Those who know Christ and know what he's all about the essence of their life is identifying with Him and say, I am a Jesus follower. I am a disciple of His. And that begins in the waters of baptism and then transfers to the rest of your life. So whether you're getting a tall 
cup of coffee from Starbucks or whether you're driving down the road or you're at your office or you're in your neighborhood, the defining characteristic of your life is I identified with Christ. So the question is, what do you see when we talk about the baptism of Jesus? What, 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 do, you, what do you behold? What is it that you understand and know? What is it that you appreciate and savor in the baptism of Christ? Because what we see in this moment in Matthew 3 was the fact that Jesus enters the water of baptism and he doesn't need to enter into that water. Jesus' baptism was given to inaugurate him into the ministry, into his mission. But it was also meant to identify him with mankind. To show us how far, how low, how deep he would go to make you clean. In the baptism of Christ, we see the power of the Spirit, the humility of Christ, and we see the depth of the love of the Father. What we see in the baptism of Christ is the depth to which the Father will go to love unclean people. To be able to show you, this is my Son, and I'm willing to hang Him on a tree. I will give my only son. Why? To make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father would be willing to turn his face away. He takes his wrath out on the chosen one. Why? To bring many sons to glory. And the baptism of Jesus was all about that. How deep, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast, beyond all measure. In other words, it doesn't fit the categories of life. That He would give His only Son to make a wretch. A wretch. A wretch. His treasure. So seriously, if, if, if you've never received Christ, this moment, you're, you're, you're a wretch. Your sins separate you from your Creator. And the only way to be right is to receive Christ. Because you can't do it. God doesn't make you a treasure by you. It doesn't work because you're a mess. And anything you do taints and messes up everything. So you needed a sinless sacrifice, a man named Christ, Jesus, so that you could be forgiven. That's what the Bible's about. That's the gospel. That's what that cross is. It is Christ identifying with your punishment so you can be forgiven. And you know, if today is the kind of day that the Spirit of God is calling you to say, 
yes, I believe, then we'd love to be able to minister to you. There's some folks up here afterwards who are some trained and skilled people in the Bible who would love just to be able to pray with you and show you how today, today, you could be moved from wretch to treasure, from separated to son. It may be that you know this relationship with Christ, but honestly, the identification factor with you and Christ is frankly embarrassing. And maybe today your response would need to say, enough, Lord. I need to identify with you in my speech, in my mind, in my eyes, in my heart. I need to identify with you in my money and in how I handle my job and my kids and what I watch and what I click on and and what I think about and how I treat my spouse. I need to identify with Christ because he identified 